You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to episode 55 of Ask Concussion Doc. I'm your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Uh, I have three questions today that were submitted, so thank you to all of you that submitted questions to, uh, I did it on my live, or sorry, on my story, and we had a number of questions come in from that, and also people that responded to Complete Concussion's main Instagram page had a number come in like that. We had some come in from email as well, so it's always good for us to add to our question bank and keep going so we can keep kind of answering the questions that people have, and uh, so today we have three questions, but first... I want to talk about the new study that's gaining headlines out of Ontario, Canada, looking at the concussion incidents being diagnosed at hospital emergency departments and also from physicians' records. Um, now, we thought that the number of concussions was around 600 per 100,000 residents, so 600 concussion injuries per year for every 100,000 people in the population. And the new study found that it was actually over 1,100 concussions per 100,000 people. That means that about 1.2% of the population of every, so 1.2% of every man, woman, and child each year is getting a concussion in the province of Ontario. If we extrapolate this to the population of Canada, we're looking at close to half a million concussions each year in Canada alone. Uh, so that's a, that's a, crazy number and it's actually almost double what we had originally thought it was and this is when it was looked at a few years ago so um, the the whole argument as well as the actual incidence of concussion increasing or are we just being able to recognize the concussions better I think we're getting better at recognition but I also think given the state of where we're at with concussion and kind of the media hype everyone everyone who bumps their head even mildly believes that they have a concussion. And so I think we're getting a bit of an overdiagnosis as well. One thing to keep in mind, however, from these numbers is that they're only based on physician's records. So a lot of people that get concussions may not present to a physician's office. They may go to another healthcare provider who doesn't is not linked into the provincial uh, health system, uh, like a physiotherapist, chiropractor, occupational therapist, athletic therapist, you name it. Uh, they may go there. They also may not see the care of any healthcare provider. And so this is likely an underestimation for the number of concussions that are actually occurring because it's only based on physicians' records. So pretty crazy to think that you know, 1% of the population is getting a concussion every year. It's a big number. Okay, first question. How much do minor bumps and hits to the head impact somebody post-concussion? So I, this question actually happens to me a lot as a clinician. Whenever I have patients coming in that have a concussion, oftentimes they will report fear of hitting their head again. So even anytime, uh, you know, they, let's say they have a baby, anytime the baby kind of bumps heads with them, they think that they have another concussion, right? These mild impacts. People are concerned about this. I've had other patients who are afraid to even ride in vehicles because going over speed bumps scares them. And they, you know, if they hit a pothole, they feel that that little jar is going to affect their brain in some way, okay? First thing we have to understand 
in answering this question is we are not that fragile. We just aren't, right? If you look at sporting events, look at a sport like football, they're not getting concussed on every single play. And I guarantee you that almost every single one of those hits is harder than your baby hit you in the head. If your baby hit you in the head with their head, do you think they have a concussion? If they don't, it's unlikely that you do. So these little tiny bumps, a concussion, in order for a concussion to occur, it's the stretching and shearing of brain cells. So in order to kind of create, in order to cause a concussion, you have to stretch a nerve cell or a brain cell to a great enough extent to pull open these voltage-gated channels. Now, every time you get a little bump in the head, is that enough acceleration to open these voltage-gated channels? No. You need a substantial amount of force to do that. The research on this, and we've talked about this in terms of G-forces and things like that, research on this looking at instrumented helmets in the sport of football find that 70% of the impacts that happen in football are under 30 Gs. Impacts that result in concussion are over 70 Gs. That's a lot of force. I'm going to put this in perspective again. I've done this before. In looking at biomechanical studies from motor vehicle accidents, we see that impacts um, where the airbags deploy, so your airbags are set to deploy in a change of velocity of about 50 kilometers per hour, or for you Americans, 30 miles per hour, your airbags are set to deploy. So you're driving your car, you rear-end somebody hard enough, the airbags go off. That translates into 60 Gs of acceleration or deceleration through the seatbelt. So even a car accident to that extent where the airbags go off may not be enough to cause concussion injury. So when you think about this and you have a little bump in the head from anything, let's say you hit your head on a countertop. I have a number of patients that come in with their concussion symptoms after bumping their head on a countertop. Did you hit your head the equivalent of a car accident? Did you hit your head the equivalent of, and when these studies look at these football helmets, they find that less than 0.1% of all the impacts that happen in football actually result in a concussion. So when you hit your head and you think you may have suffered a concussion, did you hit your head hard enough to be 0.1% of an impact that would you'd see in a football game? Okay, it's a, it's a lot of force. It's not every little bump in, in hit, right? Like this isn't causing a concussion for me, right? A bump in the head might not necessarily cause a concussion. If it's a substantial hit, then for sure, okay? Now, the argument is then made, well, what if I have a concussion right now? Don't I have an increased risk? Well, yes, you do. In the initial first few weeks, smaller hits can cause subsequent concussions. But that's only in the first couple weeks where that vulnerability period has been found to exist. Beyond that period, at least in the animal studies, because we can't study this well in humans, is if we were to give these animals second concussions after recovery has taken place in terms of that low energy deficit that concussion results in, if you get hit again in that period, it's just another concussion. So there is no increased vulnerability necessarily in that from a, from a mechanical standpoint. Studies looking at humans 
with these large epidemiological studies. So what I mean by that is when you look at a, a huge group of people, like 10,000 people, they'll find that people that have had a previous concussion tend to get concussed a lot more frequently than people that have never had a concussion before. So the results of these studies will suggest that having a concussion previously increases your risk for having future concussions. Okay? It does according to the correlation. But correlation and causation are two different things. Just because you've had a concussion doesn't necessarily mean that's why you're more at risk for having a future concussion. Maybe, and this is what these studies don't take into account, is the fact that just because I've had a concussion, maybe I'm more of a high-risk player. And that's why I had the concussion in the first place. If I don't change the way I play and I still play aggressively, I'm going to increase my risk for subsequent concussions. Not because I'm more vulnerable, but just because I'm this type of player that gets concussions because I go out there and I, I bang hard and I put my head down and I go into things. If that's my style of play, I likely have had a concussion before and I'm likely more likely to get one in the future. So this is where these studies fall short. When you look at studies that actually examine the amount of force required to cause concussion, and so there's a study that was done uh, in Ottawa recently where they took people coming into the emergency department and they were adolescents and they were adolescents that had fall injuries. So then they would recreate the fall. Okay, how, how high did you fall from? What surface did you land on? Did you have a helmet on? Uh, was it turf? Was it ice? Was it concrete? Where, where did you fall? And they would document all of this. So there's hundreds and hundreds of these incidents. And they would then ask, you know, did you have a previous concussion before? Or is this your first one? And then they would kind of categorize them based on that. They would then take that data and say they fell from a height of three feet. They were this much weight. And they would calculate how hard they hit the ground. And they tried to see if those that had a previous concussion had less impact force required to cause their subsequent concussion than those who were having their first time concussion. And they actually found that there was no difference. So the group that had had a previous concussion and the group that didn't have a previous concussion were getting concussed with the same amount of force regardless. So in terms of susceptibility and vulnerability, we haven't actually identified an increased vulnerability or susceptibility to impact in people that have had previous concussions. There's a correlation saying that somebody who's had a previous concussion is more likely to get a future concussion, but we don't know if that's due to brain vulnerability or some other factor. Style of play, position play, yada, 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 body size, right? Maybe I'm a smaller player, I get knocked around more, that's why I get more concussions. Who knows? But in terms of brain vulnerability, it hasn't been shown to be there. So a little bit of a hit to the head to you is not necessarily going to increase your, it doesn't cause a subsequent concussion. It may not even cause the first concussion. The amount of patients that I see that have persistent concussion symptoms from bending forward and hitting their head on a countertop or a, uh, you know, hitting their head on a door as they open it, I don't think that's enough force. And so um, there's a lot of other factors at play that can cause symptoms and the symptoms are very nonspecific. So, don't get too worried about the little bumps and things that happen throughout your life, right? Riding in a car, we are not that fragile. If we were that fragile, I don't even think we would survive as a species. We would have been extinct long ago because, you know, we've been fighting for forever, okay? So that's the answer to that one. I hope that helps people that are concerned about the hits to the head that they may be getting. 
Question number two. Ketogenic diet. Is the ketogenic diet in the first week after injury proven to be beneficial for brain recovery? Has it been proven? No. Is it interesting? Yes. So there's not enough studies done on humans yet, but there's been some animal trials on traumatic brain injury, meaning all spectrums of traumatic brain injury, not just concussion. That's where the things get confusing because a severe traumatic brain injury and a mild traumatic brain injury are two different things. Concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. Severe traumatic brain injury uh, or moderate traumatic brain injury are very different elements. But in animal studies, eating a ketogenic diet in a, uh, a rodent model following traumatic brain injury has been found to mitigate the risk of suffering from neurodegenerative diseases such as um, uh, where we at here Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, and also with um, epilepsy. In humans, ketogenic diet has been used for epilepsy and also inflammation and dietary things are thought to lead to Alzheimer's. And so ketogenic diet may have a place in that in general, but there isn't a lot of human studies on this. The fact that it has been found to be potentially protective for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, we then should be thinking, I wonder if it could be protective for things like CTE. We know that after concussion, there's um, inflammation in the brain that happens. You get activation of microglial cells in the brain which promote inflammation. That inflammation can linger and actually bring more inflammation to the area which can start to damage some of the healthy tissue around which then brings more inflammation which then brings more inflammation and so on and so on and so on and you get this cyclical response. Having a way to reduce inflammation which a lot of times it's sugar, carbs, uh, and things like that that promote inflammatory responses. This is one of the reasons why ketogenic might be helpful is going into a state of ketosis relying on ketone bodies uh, to fuel the brain might be beneficial in squashing inflammation. Um, again, needs more research especially in the human model but in animal models shown some positive potential. Now I have a study here on concussion specifically. This is a recent one and it is from Zhang et al. in 2018, and they looked at proton magnetic spectroscopy, which looks at um, the levels of energy, basically ATP levels within the brain uh, through N-acetyl aspartate. So this looks at the metabolic levels of concussion recovery. This has been used to look at concussion recovery in humans, finding that period of vulnerability, finding the level of metabolic recovery. Uh, there's been a lot of studies out of Italy that have used this particular technology. So what this group did is they had uh, three groups, and group one was a sham injury, so they didn't receive a concussion at all, and they were given a regular diet for a rat. Uh, group two was given three concussions spaced out by 24 hours each. So three concussions back to back to back, 24 hours apart. Also given a normal rat diet. Then group three was also given three concussions spaced out by 24 hours each, but they were put on a ketogenic diet that started the day of the injury. So they were fed a normal diet up to the day of the injury, and then at the point of injury, they were started on keto friendly diet. They gave them just fat, high fat, low carb, ketogenic diet. 
Animals were then put through motor tests such as balance beam, modified beam walking. They were given a standard MRI and also MR spectroscopy to look at the level of energy in the brain because concussion causes a drop in ATP that comes back over time and that's how you dictate the recovery of concussion. All animals were studied for seven days after the final injury, so the typical recovery for a rat on a metabolic standpoint is about five days, just so you know. So five days for that NAA to drop down and come back up to full levels. So they were followed for seven days after the final injury and then killed and processed and put under staining to look at the brain and look at the extent of the damage. They had these studies that were done in vivo, in life, and then also post-mortem studies to look at actual pathology in the brain. And here's what they found. No differences between any of the rats before the concussions happened. Animals fed with a ketogenic diet displayed elevated ketosis. So we know that they were actually getting into a state of ketosis. So they had um, beta-hydroxybutyrate levels that indicated that. At day one after injuries, both, both injured groups performed worse than the sham group on their beam walking and everything else. Um, at, um, after seven days, the ketogenic group was significantly better than the normal diet group on beam walking and beam balance tasks. So they were better functionally and this was significant statistically in both regards. On spectroscopy, it was found that seven days after the concussion, the NAA levels were significantly reduced in the normal diet group uh, versus the sham injured. So the group that didn't get an injury, the normal diet group had significantly reduced levels of ATP, NAA, but the ketogenic diet group was significantly better than the group that was getting normal food sources. So their energy levels had actually boosted up and they only started it the day of injury. Uh, staining after the concussion found that microglial expression, uh, which is associated with neurodegeneration, in the ketogenic diet was actually upregulated. It actually improved, um, it was, so it was protective against potential future neurodegeneration. So again, animal study, we need human studies, so, but is it proven? No. Is it interesting? Yes. And more research needs to be done in the area because it could be potentially protective for A, concussion recovery, and B, the long-term neurodegenerative effects that are thought to be due to concussion. Interesting. Cool. What do you think, Joe? Interesting? All right. <laughs> okay. Study number three, or sorry, question number three is what is the best approach to sideline concussion management? So you're a sideline therapist and you want to know what the best approach to the sideline management is. Uh, this depends. You have two scenarios, two main scenarios. One player gets hit and is down on the field, potentially unconscious. And scenario two, player gets hit on the field and comes off the field but is displaying potential signs of concussion as they come off the field. For example, being off balance or holding their head or you know, being confused, going the wrong direction, but they come off under their own power. So these are the two scenarios and they're a little bit different in how you're going to handle it. Number one, they're down on the field. You're going in there under the assumption that they could be unconscious. And the first thing you're concerned with if the player is unconscious is making sure that they don't have, well, First of all, you want to make sure that they're breathing and alive, but always the first thing I do is I stabilize the head because if they do come to, 
sometimes they try to sit up really quickly. And so you want to make sure you're stabilizing them because they could have a neck fracture. If they've had enough force to create a loss of consciousness, they have enough force obviously to create fracture in the neck and you want to be concerned about a spinal cord injury. So the first thing you do is go up, you stabilize the head and then you try to see if they're conscious. Okay, Try to wake them up in some way uh, and then if they're unconscious, now you're moving very quickly into ABCs looking for breathing you know, um, heart rate, pulse. So then you're holding, feeling for a pulse, assessing, making sure they're breathing. If they are, that's great. Stabilize. Um, and you may need to call 911 depending on how long they've lost consciousness for. But you're basically monitoring vitals and stabilizing the situation. I'd be getting an AED out there really quickly because you never know what could happen. If they come to and they are conscious, then you have to get in right away, start asking them kind of some of the Maddox questions. So things like, where are we at? So these are from the SCAT. You can find these on the SCAT 5, which is available online for free. And you can ask questions like, um, what venue are we at? Uh, what's the score of the game? Who did we play last week? What was the score of that game? Who scored last, us or them? These are questions to orientation, kind of time and place, because this is how you assess really quickly if the person is aware of where they're, where they're at. And if they're not aware, it's likely that there's been a concussion. If they're unconscious, when you get there, they already, you already know they have a concussion. You don't necessarily have to ask those questions. Next, I keep, my, I keep stabilizing their head because I'm still concerned about a potential neck fracture. I'm going to start asking about pain, numbness in the limbs, neck pain. Do you have pain in your neck? No. Do you have any numbness, tingling, pain down the arms or legs? No. Okay, good. Then I'm going to start assessing a bit of motor function. Okay, can you wiggle your fingers for me? I'm going to start distally, meaning small joints. So fingers and toes, good. Wrists and ankles, good. Elbows and knees, good. Okay, great. Now I know that they have good sensation, they have good motor function, and I'm still stabilizing their neck. The Canadian C-spine rules, which are indication for who should get an x-ray of their neck, so this is things looking for fracture, says that if they have spinous tenderness, if you push on one of their spinous processes and they have a lot of pain there, that's indicative of a potential fracture, and so you should be getting a neck x-ray for that. So while, as I'm stabilizing, I'll start just asking, do you have any pain when I push on these? And I'll be up underneath pushing on the spinous processes to try and see if that elicits any pain. If it does, I'm going to stabilize and I'm going to call for 911 or whoever to come out and help me to get this person to the hospital for a neck x-ray, keeping their head stabilized. If I push and there's no pain, then I'm moving on to the next stage. Canadian CT head rule says the person should be able to turn their head in both directions at least 45 degrees with no pain or blockage. So then I'm going to remove my hands and say, okay, I just want you to turn your head to the left for me as far as you can, nice and slow. And if they can turn more than 45 degrees, okay, good, come back to neutral. And I want you to turn your head 45 degrees to the right for me. No pain with that. Good. Okay, now I'm going to sit this person up and I'm going to then get them up slowly and then walk them off the field. Now, if they've had a loss of consciousness or they screwed up any of their Maddox questions, I know that there's a concussion there. I'm going to monitor them on the sidelines for that concussion and make sure that things don't get worse. Um, if any of the, you know, if you're in now into first aid emergency mode, that's completely different. Concussion is the least of your concerns now. You're worried about somebody dying. And if a spinal cord injury is present, you're not worried about the concussion anymore because that's the least of your concerns. The most concerning thing is the spinal cord injury. Right? So you're kind of working through all of these things simultaneously and triaging what's most important at that time. 
The second scenario is the patient gets hit, they come off the field under their own power, and they're displaying some signs of concussion, or you have some reason, maybe the hit was big, you have some reason to go and question them about this. Again, you can ask Maddox questions, which are, where are we? What's your What's your name is a great question. I use that one all the time uh, because someone should really know their name if you ask them and they don't know. That's obviously there's been some confusion there. Um, Maddox questions, orientation, where are we? What's the date? What time of day is it? Who do we play last week? Who scored last? Who's winning this game? What's the score of the game? These are all orientation questions. If they're banging those out really quickly, I move on to just symptoms. Do you have a headache? Do you have any dizziness? Do you, are your eyes blurry? Any of the symptoms. If they say no, 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 they answer the questions quickly, well, great. They don't have a concussion. They've been able to kind of do all that stuff. There's no cause for concern. If they come off and there's signs like um, they're you know off balance, they're clutching their head, they're they're um, they're you know they're reporting double vision, anything like that, then you're going to take them aside, and now you're going to go into concussion assessment protocol. Uh, you can follow the SCAT or any other sideline tool that you like. And the big things to be concerned about, again, are not necessarily concussion. You already suspected concussion, so you remove them from play. They're not going back in the game no matter how they do on their scat because they're already endorsing symptoms following an impact. Now you're just following them to make sure that the concussion um, is only a concussion and not something more serious. So you're going to do neurological examination, cranial nerve, uh, cerebellar testing, um, and then you're gonna, you can either repeatedly administer the SCAT to make sure they're not deteriorating using different word lists. And essentially what I do is I, I do my initial kind of assessment, I get all my information down, and then I just have them sit there, I take their helmet away so they can't get back in the game, and then I go back to the sidelines and I'm doing my thing monitoring the rest of the game, and then every 5-10 minutes I'll go back, I'll talk to my guy, how you doing, everything okay, you getting better, getting worse, yes or no. Um, and then I'll just monitor that. Another thing um, that I should mention is that there is some evidence to suggest that elevated body temperature following concussion increases the amount of glutamate release, which then increases the amount of calcium intake into the cell, which increases the amount of damage and oxidation that could occur, which also results in potentially prolonged recovery um, and potentially more you know, cellular damage. So what I've gotten into the habit now of when I talk to my coaches, my trainers on the sidelines is um, to try to cool the person down a bit, is just get them in the shade, get their gear off, cool them down, try to cool their core body temperature down to normal thermic levels as soon as possible to try and mitigate any of that effect. So don't sit them in the sun with their helmet on, sweating buckets. That's just going to make things worse potentially. I try to get them cooled down as soon as possible, you know, put some ice around their neck um, and then just sit them in the shade, give them lots of fluids, get them kind of on that, that you know, spectrum first. And then it re-administer the scat, re-administer your cranial nerves, follow them up. They should be they should have somebody with them for at least the next two to three hours to monitor for any deterioration. So if they're leaving and the game's over and they're going home, make sure a parent is with them. They have to be left in the care of a responsible adult. So that's kind of the sideline management is you're just making sure that they don't have anything more serious. And if they do, you're addressing that first, particularly spinal fractures, skull fractures, uh, airway breathing concerns, um, that type of stuff, cardiac. Concussion is kind of secondary to all of that. And then when the concussion is suspected, then you're going into brain bleeds, 
and things like that to make sure that you're not deteriorating. And if you're deteriorating, they should be going to the hospital ASAP. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.